Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. Please become supporters of the Katie Helper Show at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show for extended interviews and bonus episodes. How's everyone doing? This is a great show. We have a lot that we're going to be talking about. We have a great lineup. And we have three wonderful guests that we're so excited to bring on. And I know you guys are excited too, because you guys have been mentioning that in the comments on social media. And uh, I'm just going to give you a quick uh, intro to them. We're talking about Alexandria Villasenor, who at the age of 13, co-founded the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Movement, part of the youth-led International Fridays for Future Movement. Now, at the ripe old age of 16, Alexandria has become an internationally recognized environmental activist, public speaker, author, and founder of several more initiatives, including the climate education-focused nonprofit Earth Uprising International. Then we're also going to be talking to Pramila Malik, who is a mother, community organizer, and environmental activist, and she's founder and chair of Protect Orange County. She was also a Democratic State Senate candidate in 2016 and 2018, and We'll be talking to James Cromwell, who is a well-known actor and activist, best known for his role in Babe, for which he received an Oscar nomination. He also starred in The Artist, The Queen, The Green Mile, Six Feet Under. And we're going to also be talking to James and Pramila about going to jail together to protest the build-out of a frack gas power plant in upstate New York. So I think we're ready to to bring on Leslie Lee, my co-host of Struggle Session fame. Hi, Leslie. Hey, how's it going? Good, you? Good, good. What are, you, what are your thoughts about what happened this week? Nina Turner, well, Andrew Cuomo, what are you thinking about? The Andrew Cuomo stuff, man. I don't want to do any anti-Italian prejudice, but I do actually think what he did was wrong. And, and he should resign. And now you, what you're saying is that's not because he's Italian. Unrelated not because to he's Italian. Heritage. You're not, not committing a hate crime here. You're just based on what he did. Yes, just based on what he did, which is not normal and not how you're supposed to act. And his defense, which was so prepared. I, I like they had a video, like a pre-taped video yeah. ready. And it was exposed. We knew it was pre-taped because it looped. It started looping on CNN. They didn't stop it ahead of time. So it was pre-taped. And he basically explained that all this behavior, he tried to make it about this one woman so that he doesn't have to address like the 12 women who are right. saying he mistreated people besides all the other people. Because the report didn't just say that he sexually harassed like dozens of women. It also said he was abusive in every way a boss be, can be abusive. But yeah. he definitely hid behind, tried to hide behind being Italian, Cuomo did. And he also tried to hide. It was so disgusting that point where he he like called out the report. So we're talking about the report from the attorney general's office. Tish James released a report that basically corroborated the allegations of 11 women who had accused Cuomo of inter- things ranging from inappropriate like commentary to actually cupping their breasts. And he definitely, what he tried to do in this montage that he prepared, which I can't believe he prepared this. This was not done by Apo. This was his own attempt at damage control. He had a montage of himself, and I live streamed this on when did it happen Tuesday, uh, basically inappropriately touching people of all colors, backgrounds, yes. creeds, ages. And you think we're joking, but we're not. And he also tried to hide behind 
like he tried to play the male ally, feminist ally, because he was like, the report went after people, women in my office. And that's because they're women. They get, when have you seen a man maligned for being, having yeah, people Yeah, he tried hard? to bring in Kamala Harris's thing. Yeah. And Amy Klobuchar. I'm like, yes, wait a minute. Exactly. How, is, how is that your defense, dude? Right. I mean, how does and, that and, help you? Well, the irony is that it's, he's like, when are men maligned for this? It's like you, you're being maligned for this <laughs> rightly. So yes, anyway, He's saying this whole system's out of order, so nobody should be held accountable. Right. Or he's just trying, yeah, and he's just trying to to say, what is it? He's basically trying to, to throw allegations of sexism, sexism at this report, which is corroborating <laughs> allegations of sexism about him that he committed. Yeah, really gross stuff. And then we, of course, know that Chris Cuomo, who is a very outspoken anti-Italian prejudice activist, as we know, because he compared the word Fredo to the N-word. He, as we know now, and we knew starting in May, but he did a lot of advising to his brother. Like, we know he wrote statements that Cuomo said, Andrew, Chris read state, wrote statements that Andrew read basically verbatim. And at the same time, decided it was not a conflict of interest to stay at CNN. And yeah. what he was doing is he was covering Andrew when Glenn Greenwell pointed this out, when Andrew was doing what Chris had him on the show, then when there's a scandal, he can't talk about him anymore. It was inappropriate on both ends. And CNN offered Chris the chance to take a leave of absence while he advised his brother and he declined. So they openly embraced the conflict of interest. And then Chris actually apologized he said it was a mistake that he was advising his brother, but then he said, but I'm a family man first, job guy second, which, okay, then don't do your job at that point. You yeah, know, it's yeah. just such entitled impunity and yeah, gross. We're not just talking about like Andrew Cuomo being hard to work with. Like he's touching women's breasts, touching their lower backs. I mean, that's the thing. These are people who worked for the Democrat Party, wanted to work for the Democrat Party all their lives, I'm sure, put up with all this crap from him. If they're willing to speak out, that means something. Yes, that's true, that, actually. I, I don't think that they're just, like, weak people who are upset that they got yelled at a little bit right. because they screwed up at work. That's You don't yeah. go this far. You right. don't basically torture entire, put your entire career at risk over yes. small stuff. And someone also points out it doesn't absolve him if most bosses are also shitheads, which yeah, is true. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point, yeah. So we also want to talk about more evidence of how terrible the Democrats are. Do you want to... Okay, this is another... Yes, Cuomo should have been removed for the nursing home scandal. Yes. He is a, an extremely well-qualified person for removal. A, re, a truly renaissance man. You got the sexual harassment. You got the threats. You got... We had Ron Kim on the show before. Remember, Leslie, who yes, so Cuomo yeah. told, I will destroy you. He's a bully. He has blood on his hands over the nursing home. He gave immunity, liability immunity to nursing homes and hospitals because they were his donors. He snuck that into the budget. He has an austerity budget. He's basically a, a fiscal conservative. Yeah, lots of other great things. Do you think that he's definitely going to be definitely going to resign? No, I don't think he's going to resign at all. You know that de Blasio is so happy about this. <laughs> I know, right? He's so excited. Yeah. So, just really quickly, and next story about why the Democrats are are so terrible is, and of course, we don't like the Republicans either. But I think everyone knows that, Leslie. 
Yeah, I would assume so. Oh, re relevant point. Yes, he did work with the Repubs to keep out a Dem majority. Yes, the IDC, the Independent Democratic Caucus, yeah. which is basically a right-wing thing that it hamstrings the left. But someone wrote, can we mourn Nina Turner's loss really got wrenching? And that's exactly actually what I was going to be talking about next. Nina Turner did lose her congressional bid to Chantel Brown. It was a case where Nina Turner was winning. Chantel Brown was very much the corporate candidate. Nina Turner was the progressive candidate. She was smeared by the media, uh, the New York Times, in the way only the New York Times can do, actually said in an article about her, some Democrats blame her for Clinton's loss of Ohio, which is a pretty absurd thing to say in a reported piece. But that's just one example of the odds against her. And there was a lot of money poured in. And I got to say something, Leslie. Have you seen this at all? Bree was trying to tweet about this friend of show, Brianna Joy Gray, because there was a major, quote unquote, pro-Israel lobby that donated a lot of money to Chantel Brown, Nina's op opponent. And that did, it looks like it had a major influence on the election. And that's a very awkward thing for people to talk about. And I get it. That's why as a Jewess, I'm going to keep saying it again and again. But people are getting called anti-Semites just for bringing this up. We saw it happen to Brianna Joy Gray. And again, I, I think we've talked a lot on the show about how being quote unquote pro-Israel is not pro-Jewish. There's a long, rich history of anti-Semitic Zionism. You can watch the various interviews that we, we've done on this subject. But she did lose. There's a lot of stuff that we can look at, a lot of takeaways. But I just thought we would case study QB as usual, has some great clips. Can I just play you some clips about this? Okay. This is Jim Clyburn, who put his uh, thumb on the scale in both the, both the, the general election and then the election with Nina Turner. A real, this really contentious primary going on in Ohio for Marcia Fudge's house seat. You're supporting Chantel Brown, but progressives are backing Nina Turner. Millions of dollars are being spent. Lots of attack ads, name calling. What do you think this outcome will mean for the direction of the party? It all depends upon what the results will be. I'm a great believer that we must do everything we can to elevate the political discourse in this country. We just had a precedent who lowered that discourse to a level unimaginable. We cannot have legislating by soundbite. And I am a big believer that we should be working on trying to make headway for the American people. But there seem to be people who are more interested in what the headline is, more interested in gotcha politics. And so I've been supporting Chantel because Chantel asked me to support her. Chantel is the kind of person that I think will help elevate the political discourse in this country. She is a big supporter of Joe Biden, and I have worked with her for about 10 years on Marsha Fletcher's various events, and I think she will make an outstanding congressperson. And I do believe that, as my dad used to tell me all the time, the first sign of a good education is good manners. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing everything I possibly can to help people get to, elected to office who can bring that kind of attitude to the political discourse. My parents used to say that as well. I forgot about that saying, and boy, we could sure. <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, Stop lying. Stop you know, lying. We use some good lying. Speaking, speaking of which, by the way, stop lying, good manners. You should have seen uh, Don Lemon greet last night. Chris Cuomo did an entire show without mentioning Andrew Cuomo, OBS. And Don Lemon, when they were signing off, they do that little shift. One goes, the other one comes on, and Don, Don Lemon was like, I love your brother. 
<laughs> so corny. But so yeah, stop lying. You don't think his parents said that too about good manners? No, absolutely not. Absolutely. Yeah. Not. Also, what does that mean? That's just his way of throwing shade at Nina Turner for being for saying well, things, speaking truth to power. Well, Katie, here's another wrestling term I'm going to drop on the audience. Oh, ladies. great. All right, so the term is angle. And angle just means storyline. Technically, it's kind of it, people use it to mean like in politics to mean like perspective. But in wrestling, it kind of means the same thing. But a storyline is just you trying to get a perspective over to someone. And so the story there is the story you're telling. So if you're the ang if uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin wants to fight Bret Hart because he doesn't think Bret Hart respects him, that's in what you call an angle. And they have a bunch of fights and fuse in this ongoing storyline and so the angle that they're trying to sell i guess here is that the reason nina turner lost is because she sent mean tweets about democrats it seems to be that was the angle that they're trying to get over it's like nina turner is just too hostile and nina turner's fans were too hostile and that's why she lost and has nothing to do with a big pile of money shoveled into this frankly nothing small race that nobody should be paying attention to we're supposed to pretend like that's normal <laughs> like right. that, that like you're like come on it's an angle and it's not it's an it's, angle yeah it's a storyline also i don't remember clyburn who again intervened on behalf of biden and on behalf of brown i don't remember him uh, criticizing Nina Tandon for her mean tweets, which I know, uh, right? we can both attest to were way meaner than anything that Nina Turner ever said. Yeah, um, they're trying to run the angle that worked on Nira. I know. On Nina Turner. Yeah, but Nira is not Nina. Nina's not Nira. We have a couple of more clips. Okay, here's friend of show, Al Sharpton, who's, by the way, one of the people who we saw kissing Cuomo in a montage. I don't know if you saw the montage, Leslie, but he yes, I did. the full extent of it so he kissed my favorite person that he kissed up close and personal was bill clinton that was beautiful to behold andrew cuomo trying to exonerate himself by showing himself inappropriately touching bill clinton and al sharpton was another person so let's just play this you're starting to, to sense uh, really more of a, an urgency among democrats to start following the guidance that you've been given on this program for a very long time and that is just say no to to latte liberals and get common sense liberals is this uh, and, 1997 it is clear that there's a sense of urgency and a, and a sense of you cannot continue to be intimidated by people that are not speaking on behalf of the people you represent Hakeem Jeffries is a progressive. He's a prudent progressive. Jim Clyburn is a progressive, a prudent progressive. But for people to try and act like that the most extreme and offensive and insulting or name-calling makes them a progressive when they're doing it against people that this had is the to angle. fight to get this is into the, angle. the mainstream. The Bernie Bro like, angle. Uh, Jim Clyburn was born in the mainstream. Here's a man the who Bernie went to Bro jail, him and his wife, fighting segregation. And here you have some this trust is a, fund this babies is telling him how to be One a of the most hated black men in america talking about how we have to in, turn in down the rhetoric why yeah. people hated you you should have went away uh, in like 1989 if you were okay just really quickly i want to say that the trust fund latte liberals and trust fund language is something we hear a lot about socialists right this narrative that anyone who believes in in progressive policies 
some kind of spoiled brat. And yes, Clyburn did do important stuff during the civil rights movement. That's true. And he's also the biggest recipient of big farmer donations in all of Congress. People are complex and they have history and you can do good things and you can also do bad things. I like Sharpton's we should do some of these workouts, Leslie. He goes on Instagram and he gives inspiring oh, workout yeah. talks. We should watch them then. But he, he's not the most, he's done a lot of good <clears throat> stuff. He's a morally complicated person. Let's put it at that. And somewhat opportunistic, one could say, if they were really being understated. And like the idea that like, oh, you have to tone down your rhetoric. Like that, he never did that until I like know. MSNBC gave him a. Uh, yeah, he used to get into like fist fights with people. On the nine, the shows in the nineties. Yeah, he built his name on sensationalism, get in front of the cameras. You've been talking about okay, here uh, we go. these uh, some of these people that are so disconnected uh, that speak to communities but never go to communities, never go where the people live, and. You're talking specifically of communities of color. We saw it back in, in 2020. We saw that it was, in fact, black women predominantly, but also black men that helped Joe Biden win South Carolina and sweep to the presidency. And we've seen it in one race after another this year. And the fact of the matter, Joe, is that a lot of the latte liberals, as I call them, act like we're just, what is it, that blacks in South Carolina are stupid? Or are they saying, no, we're voting our interests with a practical? You can't in race after race see the majority of black voters, particularly black women, brown voters, vote against a lot of what they're talking about and act like for some reason they don't have enough sense to rise to their intellectual level. No, maybe they reject it because they have to practically raise families in situations that are disadvantaged and disproportionately not getting the goods and services that other communities are getting. And they rather have practical, prudent, progressive politicians Again, rather this is than the angle, people that want to dream at their expense. This is the other angle that the reason if a progressive loses a race, that's because the voters who are just a fraction of the people who live in the community are super geniuses who speak for the entire community. And it's literally racist to say that once a politician is elected, that they're a bad politician or that they're up, another politician might have been better. Just had better policies. Yeah. And also, what are these policies that are so fringe? Because sorry, but all these policies, Medicare for all, which was that Nina Turner supported, those do well. And they black communities as an aggregate are more supportive of single payer than white communities. Like that polls very well. Obviously, it's not a monolith. But I mean, I'm sorry. And it's, it's, it's silly to even talk about votes. Like, who wins most races? Whoever like gets the most money. Of course, a right. ton of money came in to defeat Nina Turner from outside. If that money hadn't come in, come in, Nina Turner would have won. Right. Why did this woman even run against Nina Turner in the first place? Why was this nothing so much money going to this nothing race? And the reason are obvious is because Nina Turner is on. <laughs> the bad list of the Hillary Clinton bad list. And like they decided that she can't have even a little bit of a career. Right. <laughs> yep. And yeah, it was shameful the way that the, that democratic fund for Israel pack came in and it's embarrassing and it shouldn't have happened. And that's really why what tipped it. And 
that's yeah that's just so shameful and embarrassing to hear sharpton say that it's so the, that whole narrative of how it's some kind of privilege for and and you pointed out something really important leslie which is like voters are not most people aren't voters so people like to pretend that voters speak for everyone and of course the people who are like the least feel the least represented are the people who don't vote at all yes so when he's talking about what black voters want this that, and the other he's not he's talking about a, first of all he's full of it but he's also not even talking about most people in any community it's the same angle that they've been running they ran it on bernie sanders now they're run it on nina turn i guess they're just gonna run it over and over again bernie bros too angry you're racist if you say a centrist is bad because black people voted uh for the centrist it, like oh even though it's always just a fraction of a fraction who could have just as easily voted for the other person like they like the other person too so like that's the thing that ha we talked about over and over again in 2016 and 2020 like people liked bernie too even if they didn't vote for him so where was this idea that but the implication used by people was always that bernie has a race problem right. and black people don't like him and he is therefore racist when it was like no people just liked also liked other people in the race and also the biggest thing against him i think i've always said was that he that people thought that he wasn't electable and because that was because the, the media kept saying that yeah, because every time you turn on the MSNBC, it was somebody saying he wasn't electable. Exactly, yeah. So, anyway, that was really shameful. And I'm not a fan. So, we're going to bring in, that was great, and I'm so excited to be bringing in our guests. We're going to start off with James Cromwell. Uh, you know him, you definitely know him and love him. He's been in films such as The Artist, The Queen, Babe, of course, The Green Mile, Deep Impact, also on shows Succession and Six Feet Under, and a major activist in ways that you don't even know about. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you for coming. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And we are also really excited to bring into the show Alexandria Villasenor, who is, again, a major youth climate uh, activist. She, she co-founded the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Movement, part of the youth-led International Fridays for Future Movement. And now she's all grown up and 16, and she's an environmental activist, public speaker, author, and founder of several more initiatives, including the climate education-focused nonprofit Earth Uprising International. She's also an author. We'll talk to her about that. Welcome, Alexandria. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. And then we're going to bring on Pramila Malik, who is an environmental activist, mother, community organizer, founder and chair of Protect Orange County. And she was also a Democratic State Senate candidate in 2016 and 2018. So welcome, Pramila. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Thank you all so much for joining. This is Leslie Lee, in case uh, I think, Pramila, you didn't get to meet Leslie. Oh, nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. What is on your minds right now? What is the biggest challenge facing us at the moment? I know it's a whole listicle that we could put together, but what do you think the most urgent thing to be talking about and looking at is? Survival of all life on this planet. That's a big one. I agree with that. I'm organizing with other young people to make sure that we get climate action. So right now, what's really important to me is bringing in young people into the climate movement and just also opening it up to everyone, making sure that everybody feels like they can be an activist is really important. I would agree with Jamie as well. I think we need to start understanding the systemic causes of 
all of our multitude of crises that we face at this moment. And I just wanted to know before we got into the policy, how each of you got into this movement, like your personal connection to it. I began this fight about 10 years ago when my community in upstate New York, which is a protected agricultural district, was suddenly targeted with a massive industrial facility known as a gas compressor station. And it turns out that facility was part of a large network to bring fracked gas from Pennsylvania to New York City. And that's when I embarked on the, realized that we were on the precipice of both a public health catastrophe, but also a climate catastrophe. Yeah, I guess I can go next. I, I'm originally from Northern California, but in August of 2018, I actually moved to New York City. And I ended up going back and forth between the two at the time quite a bit because I had family in both um, coasts. And so during one trip back to my hometown in Northern California, I was there when one of the worst wildfires at the time happened, the campfire in Paradise, California. And so that was a horrible wildfire and the air quality got over 350 AQI, which is in like the hazardous area. And at one point it was the worst air quality in the world. And so being so close to that fire, I ended up getting so much of the smoke and it was seeping into my home. So my family had to roll up wet towels and put them under windows and doors to keep the smoke from coming in. And it was a really scary situation because I have asthma. And so it ended up making me really sick. And so after coming back uh, to New York at the time after that fire, I was really upset and I wanted to do something and find out why that was happening. And I started researching about wildfires and I saw the connection between climate change and California's wildfires. And that was like the first motivator for me to get involved and do something. That's how my activism started. But seeing the wildfire still happening is still a reminder. And there was a wildfire that started actually yesterday. And on the TV, it had this huge like evacuation alert. So it's always a reminder of why I got involved in the first place. I was uh, an unemployed actor in New York. My father cut a little squib out of the New York Times that they were looking for actors and directors to go down south with this theater called the Free Southern Theater. I knew nothing about the south. Uh, they got, I got the job. I went down. I got off the plane. I went to the place where we were going to stay. It had a plaque on the door saying coloreds only. I thought, wow, isn't that, that's interesting. That must be a throwback to the Civil War. Went upstairs. Nice black lady showed us to the room. The head of the theater, John O'Neill, said, let's go to dinner. He's black. We go to this restaurant in New Orleans. We get the guy, the owner comes over and says, you can't be in the restaurant. I've never been thrown out of a restaurant before, so I ball up my fist. And John says, no, just I'll advise him that he's abrogating our civil rights. And so I got an education from the minister where we rehearsed waiting for Gatto and Curly Victorious. And then we traveled into Mississippi in 1963. And a kid that I had played football with in high school, I didn't know it was him. We knew three civil rights workers were missing but it was Mickey Schwerner. I went to school with Mickey. And so I, by being in the Freedom Houses and listening to people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who attended a performance, I got radicalized in terms of the civil rights movement. Then I, then I went back to New York and that's where we had the huge anti-war protests. We shut down the entirety of Washington. There were 100,000 of us on an island outside of the White House. And then I worked for the Black Panthers. So it's always been part of me. And when I got to this little backwater, this bucolic place called Warwick, 
I thought, well, now what do I do? Because I'm an animal rights activist and I work with PETA, but I wanted to do something out of the community. And I heard about this. And I think I went to a demonstration that Pramila had organized at the plant site. And I talked to her. Once you talk to Pramila, you're engaged. And I, I thought it was uh, really important. And that there was an intersectionality between all the things that I had been involved in. They all come out of one thing, which is our endless, important struggle against capitalism and the dehumanization of people for the benefit of profit. And it's always been that. It was, that was the cause of the slavery in the South. That was the cause of the war in Southeast Asia. That was the cause of the reason that the Panthers organized in Oakland to bring jobs and meals and opportunity and safety to the people of Oakland. So it's always the same and it's the same here and it's the same now. And we're either going to go under because we maintain this bloody system or we're going to have a paradigm shift, which happens, of course, on the inside, in the heart, and then you manifest it out into the world and we will save this planet. And before we get into more about the, the plant and this paradigm shift you're calling for, just so people know, so those three men, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, they were missing and then they were found killed and they were registering people to vote in Mississippi. Do you, and you played football with Mickey Schwerner? Yeah, in a place called Pelham Manor, New York, just outside of New York City. He was out of Chicago because he was working with CORE so I, and I was sponsored by SNCC. So we didn't know that. And they didn't pay any attention to us because they thought we were a joke. An integrated theater showing Waiting for Godot to black people who had never seen a television show or a movie or, an, or the theater, and suddenly we're bringing this mammothly abstract play, which it really isn't, but to black people. And Fannie Lou Hamer stood up at the intermission and turned to the audience and said, I want you people to listen to this play because we're not doing what those two guys are doing. We're not waiting for anybody to tell us what to do. We're taking what we need. And that was wow. Fannie Lou Hamer. So wow. she, under, she understood the play. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What an amazing story. Yeah. Wow. And let's talk about this plant, Pramila and Jamie. How did you guys meet protesting this? And can you just tell people what this plant is? Um, Okay. The the plant, I'm laughing because when I first spoke to James, I didn't quite really know who he was. And he called and said, how can I help? And I said, we need a place to meet. He said, I said, what do you do? He said, he's an actor. I said, oh, we need a place to meet. Do you think you can find us a theater or something where we can meet? Anyway, he is a 650 megawatt frack gas power plant that we say was built on bribes and built on lies. It's been permitted now for over 10 years. Under development for 10 years, the company Competitive Power Ventures that built it, they built this these type of plants all over the country. And right now, as we speak, they're trying to get one built in Chicago. But it is, it is basically a plant to give a market to the fracking enterprise and to plug New York City into frack gas dependency for the next 40 years. New York City is the second largest consumer of power in the entire world, second to only to Tokyo. So it's a huge market for, for this company. And we, as I said, began fighting the compressor station. The compressor station, turned out to be a critical component of this power plant project. 
And as I said, it's a 10-year permitting process. Turns out Governor Cuomo was getting a lot of campaign donations from the company. And we knew there was corruption underway because the plant would otherwise not have been permitted because of all the environmental implications of it. It turns out that we were vindicated and validated when Governor Cuomo's closest aide was convicted of taking bribery money from the company executive, Peter Braith Kelly. And I can talk more about him and his background if you want, but that's really the sum of it. And the plant is going to, or has, increase New York State's greenhouse gas emissions by 10% of the entire power sector. So just like that, the state flipped a switch and we have increased our greenhouse gas emissions in an era and a time period when we all know and ostensibly agree that we should be reducing them. So there's a, there's a real disconnect there. The logic is irrefutable. Uh, because the emergency is so dire, because you have to do action, you have to st stop it at this local level, because this gas, this benign natural gas, they call it, I went down to Dimmick, I think a lot of us did, to see where they, this gas was coming from. They are destroying the most beautiful parts of Pennsylvania. Fracking is an incredibly destructive Look what it's doing in Oklahoma, the now the earthquake capital of the world. It spews methane. They burn off the methane uh, pollutants. What's in the fracking water, the chemicals, which are, we don't know about because Cheney got it off the books when he worked for Halliburton, when he was vice president. So the thing is a cesspool, and it's a cesspool on every level. So the corruption goes all the way up through the local government in the, the community, and the judge and how the planning commission that allowed this plant to go forward was completely replaced when they voted against it. They were replaced by people who, of course, would vote for it. And no, we have no idea what perks they got. And this corruption goes all the way up, not only to our governor, it goes all the way up into Congress and the president and the legalized bribery, which which masquerades as free election in this country, when actually what the donors are doing are buying the voices and the votes necessary to keep them in power. If you can crack that, if I could be part of the fist that breaks that dike through so that the water of truth floods over and drowns them all, I would be a very happy man. Yeah, because I remember first hearing about fracking of all, of all places, MSNBC, over a decade ago and it was either chris hayes or rachel maddow and they were just describing what it was and it sounded like something that a bond villain would come up with uh in order to get power it makes it's sending an unimaginable amount of water into the earth in a way that creates earthquakes to get this fossil fuel that we're supposed to be getting off of. And it, it and as you said, it's going to make us more dependent on it because all this money has been built towards it. I remember, again, MSNBC was on the ball about this 10 years ago. It's like, we're going to stop fracking. The fracking cannot continue to exist, but it seems like it's just become more 
and essential and a trend entrenched and now it's just republican or democrat because it was part it was a partisan issue at least ostensibly a partisan issue because it was bush who opened up the fracking permits and the idea was that once obama got in office he's going to crack down on fracking when turns out the exact opposite happened and now it's just established that fracking is just something we do and is going to be with us even though it's completely insane thing to do uh, to the earth yeah i agree with you but it's not going to be with us for very long because if we keep this up we aren't going to have a planet to live on it'll be too hot and it'll there'll be too many fires and too many drought and not enough food and not enough water so listen it's a it's an end game and they know it's an end game and they don't have a solution to keep the money in their purses and still solve the problem so they're just winging it they have no idea they're out of control and they're insane and alexandra how is the youth climate movement addressing this problem the, fra- think, the fracking and yeah i think the way that the youth climate movement addresses any problem is just by protesting and fracking is a really big issue and especially because it affects marginalized communities and low-income communities the most. And one thing that the youth climate movement, especially Fridays for Future right now, is really focusing on a lot is MAPA activists and highlighting their voices. So MAPA is most affected people in areas. And so basically it's an environmental justice issue, and that's why we really are protesting it even more so. And one of the times that we're protesting a lot is actually coming up next month, September 27th. September 24th, we're striking and we have a whole list of demands that kind of cover a bunch of different issues. And so one thing is cutting emissions drastically by divesting from fossil fuels and ending its extraction, burning and use. And, And so we have just this whole list of demands that we have. And so At a lot of our protests, fracking is usually in some of our demands because it goes along with a lot of a lot of different issues as well, because fracking does poison communities and the land in addition to contributing to emissions and making climate change worse. So it's also really a human rights issue as well, not just a climate issue. And so I think that fracking is something that kind of intersects with so many different other activists. If you're a climate activist, if you're a human rights activist, if you're a social justice activist, fracking should really be something that is talked about in all of those spaces. And do you think that people your age are receptive to this? Do you think that there's more of a sense of urgency for people your age than people who are older? For sure. I think that my generation is really is so active just because we are on such a tight crunch. We've basically grown up in a world that has been altered because of climate change. So there's a lot of things that my generation has experienced that past generations haven't necessarily. So growing up when I was really young, I remember certain species like in California, like monarch butterflies were my favorite thing ever. But in the past couple of years, they've drastically declined and they're actually heading towards extinction in California. And so it's really upsetting because there's so many things that are changing. But my generation is going to be impacted in every single way because of climate change. It's going to affect affect our futures by where we end up living, what kind of jobs we have, where we end up going to school. A lot of young people are even having conversations about whether or not they want children because of climate change. So it affects us in every single way. And I think that makes our, our motivation and our passion for this so much more. And so we found a way to really 
get involved in climate activism and use our own personal voices, but also rally with people who've been activists before us, because since we're on such a time crunch, it's so important to learn from people who've been doing this for years. That way we find the most effective way to take action. I wanted to actually ask you, all of you, where you think we went wrong. What, 51 years ago was the first Earth Day? There hasn't been a lot of progress made. And obviously that's because unlike other issues, this is a physical issue, right? Like people compare it to gender equality, racism, homophobia. Those things are on different trajectories. Like class exploitation, you could say class exploitation and climate change are both on a parallel track where it just gets worse and worse. Or inequality, I would say, stratification. But so why has the, what has to happen? What hasn't been able to happen? What are the mistakes that have been made? And what needs to happen next? I know, very easy questions. but I can tell you what our um, experiences have been. I think the one lesson we learned is that the real cause of the climate crisis is corruption. So it is these fossil fuel interests really buying public policy through our politicians. And gas was peddled as a bridge fuel under, ironically, under the narrative of fighting climate change. And that was done not only by Democratic politicians, but neoliberal environmental groups like NRDC, Sierra Club. They all peddle that false narrative. Climate truth is the crack between denial and deception. Climate denial being on the right, but climate deception being on the left. Because we have to remember that it was the Obama presidency that ushered in fracking into the United, into the United States. The um, United States started producing more power from methane than any other source of power. So it's not just that we did things wrong. I mean, that we didn't do things that we should have been doing. We actually went in the wrong direction because methane has a hundred times the global warming impact as CO2. So it is by far the worst possible greenhouse gas there is. And all of the scientists that I've spoken to say the single most important thing that we can do immediately and have the greatest impact on the climate is cutting methane emissions. So that means both from burning gas as well as from industrial agriculture. So those are the two things we have to do. And sadly, Obama's decade is going to go down as the last and lost decade to act on climate. I'm sad to say that. So the last decade, though, so that's you're saying that he did work on it. Or are you saying that the way he worked on it? The last and lost. Last and lost. So what is that? He took us in the wrong direction. So he could have. That was like the last chance you're saying? That was the last chance to actually do something meaningful. I think at this point, it's it's going to all be about mitigation, trying to basically survive as best we can. But yeah, the, the science is clear. We, we should have done this 10 years ago. James Hansen testified to Congress in 1986, and almost everything he predicted has come true. And not only is it coming true, but it's coming true much faster than scientists predicted. Scientists originally had said, we're going to lose the ice on the Arctic and the Antarctic within 80 years, but it's happening now by 2021. Just looking at some of the metrics, the IPCC just came out with a report recently, and they said that meteorologists say there's a 40% chance we're going to cross the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold by 2026. That's five years away. 
and and that we're likely going to go to three degrees Celsius. And of course, Celsius is a, a much greater differential than Fahrenheit. So yeah, we are in a climate emergency. It is catastrophic. I feel my heart breaks for all of the young people because they're basically spinning their wheels, protesting for things like the grand, the, the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal is so unbelievably abstract. It's essentially a plan for a plan. And given that kind of urgency and crisis we face today, I think it's irrational to be talking about a plan for a plan. We need to have clear, verifiable actions, measurable actions that can't be gamed, that can't be obfuscated, that can't be played around with. Greta Thunberg just put out a tweet recently, and I agree with her 100%. She called the policies being proposed creative carbon accounting and nothing but loopholes. And she's right. We are, in essence, doing nothing at best, and at worst, we're doing more damage than if we were doing nothing by building I, power plants like CPV. I think in terms of the actions that we have taken, we fail to recognize how powerful our adversary is and that the things that people have done, we protested in the 60s, we protested in the 70s, we protested all in the entirety of my life we've been protesting, petitions, demonstrations, marches, sit-ins, getting civil disobedience, although I, I think that does work. We've been trying things that basically have not worked. First of all, we've not recognized what the root cause is and, and identified it and found a way to combat it, which of course is capitalism. And then we have failed to recognize that all of our institutions have failed. Every institution has failed. The fourth estate has failed. The health program has failed. The, the educational department has failed. Every institution, our government is legalized bribery. So now once you know this and you know what, have a sense about what you're up against, you have to begin to think creatively. I, I believe that this is not going to happen in time unless there is a, this thing that I guess I hope people accept it for what it is because it is a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift occurs first in the person in, as an individual recognizing their responsibility and dedicating themselves to make sure that the end of this crisis is an idea that whose time has come. Now, if you can do that, if you commit that, then everything that you do is in support of that end. If you want to save the planet and you're dedicated to doing something, why would you not look at something that is right in front of you that you can do that's effortless and you don't need an organization. Stop eating meat. Stop contributing to the methane gas released by the agricultural industry, which is, say, is, is even above transportation. And that would make to do it one day a week so that we can start with very small things and they can lead to the things. When I was in Ethiopia in 1971, Every student in the entirety of Ethiopia said, I'm not going to school, I strike. If you want to have a country and you want it to have a benefit for my generation, then you have to change it. If you don't change it, I will not participate in it. You cannot get people of my age, people above 30, to commit themselves because they are already entangled in a system which says there is only one tool 
and that is a hammer. So everything else is a nail. If the kids would realize that they have the power, that they can actually close it down, if they organize, if they do what Greta did in front of her seat of government, just be there, do what Cori Bush did, just sit there and they, and not participate. I tell you, the halls of power would begin to shake and we'd, we'd make a big change. Yeah, this kind of goes off of uh, what both of you actually said. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we that, that have been made, I guess, is focusing on individual action more than anything, because I think in some ways that was a distraction. And what I mean by that is in school, I did not learn about climate change until I was probably like 12. Like that's when I fully understood the extent because in school, all I would really learn is reduce, reuse, recycle, which is not nearly um, enough for the extent of this crisis. And so actually recently I did my school did this choose whatever essay you want to focus on, just choose a topic. And one was actually like about the environment. And so I chose one about individual action. And after researching, I found out that the fossil fuel industry actually created the narrative of your own personal carbon footprint. And it was created by the fossil fuel industry. And so because of greed, the fossil fuel industry has tried to voice the responsibility of climate change onto the consumer by making it about our personal habits and consumer demands. Like I remember there was, I forget exactly who it was. I think it was BP put out like this tweet one time saying, here's how to calculate your own carbon footprint, but it's what is yours? Stop deflecting. What is your own carbon footprint? And so I think that one thing that we have to do now after years of kind of this false narrative of that is focus on pushing for systematic change. So sure, take the individual action of coming together with a group of people to go out and protest, to go out and strike, to push for the systemic change. Contact your government representatives, get involved in doing something that actually pushes for government and that systemic change that we need. And what is your relationship with Greta? Can you talk about your relationship with Greta Thunberg? So Amy Amy Goodman says it, Thunberg? I don't know how to pronounce it. Thunberg, Thunberg? Thunberg, yeah. Greta has been very supportive of so many activists. And what I really like about the youth climate movement is that we connect with people all around the world through this one movement. And so Greta was the inspiration for me to get involved. And she was also the inspiration for so many other people. Like when I first started striking, I started striking in front of the United Nations headquarters. I did that every Friday for over a year and until the beginning of the pandemic, of course, but I would do that and it was like freezing cold and I'm from California, can't really do the cold. (laughs) So I've sent her a message like, how do you stay out for so long? And she would give me advice. And I think what's really inspiring about the youth movement is just how we meet so many other people who give us advice and how to keep going in this movement. And that's what I really like is that support because you can't, it's hard to be an activist for so long if you don't have a group of people to do it with because this is more of a marathon and it's not, it's not a sprint. And so having a group of people to do it with makes it so much better for the long run. And what do all of you see as the role uh, of capitalism in this, in the world and in, in climate change? How much can we separate those two things? How much do we have to attack one to attack the other? They're the same. To attack one, you are attacking the other. They're in bed together and their child is despair. There's a fundamental conflict between fighting climate change and capitalism because 
capitalism in and of itself is antithetical to life. It deems all life expendable. It commodifies everything and everyone and every sentient being as well. And climate change is all about the survival of life. So those two things are at odds with each other. And that's why I totally agree with uh, Jamie in terms of having a paradigm shift and a different framework. And the, all of the climate policies that are being promoted are still being promoted with a capitalist framework. And that is not going to solve the climate crisis. Steven Donsinger, who I know you had on your show, he has proposed that all fossil fuel interests be nationalized. I agree 100% because that is the most that is the easiest, fastest way of dismantling fossil fuel interest is to nationalize them, take the profit motive out, and then dismantle them. Yeah, I agree 100% uh, with everything that's been said. I think that the systems of oppression cause the climate crisis. So racism, sexism, and of course, like capitalism all contributed to this crisis. And so we need to change our fossil fuel based economy to be able to actually get change. And right now, money has and profit has been placed over the people. And I think that, that really needs to change. So no unlimited growth. You can't have growth on a finite planet. And so everything really needs to change. And now that you guys are all here, what do you have any ideas that you want to like suggest to each other with each other? We can talk about it. Don't worry. But it's sometimes nice to try to come up with solutions as a group. It, it's going to take uh, a commitment and an ability to make sacrifices that is very difficult to, for me to believe that uh, a culture like ours, which has been living off the fat of the world with and the transportation of the, the, the manipulation and accumulation of wealth from all these other countries, just look at what's happening with the COVID vaccine. Now that we have this vaccine and beginning to think about three shots for the American public, they're charging European nations $43 billion to give them the rest of the the, vir the the vaccine. And they're going to do that to third world countries as well. So and if we can't get out of our way of thinking that as Shakespeare said, they cannot see because they do not feel. If we can't have empathy for the water keepers in Minnesota and the people in Somalia, and the people in Yemen, uh, if we can't understand them, then the people right in front of us that we step over, who are unhoused, who have no place to go, the people who have been evicted from, if we can't see, that's what government is supposed to, they're supposed to protect the people, but of course they don't. They only protect the donors. So I think if we can start to take responsibility for our own actions, and we can start to put our actions, our words into action and join and become part of a group that has a, a focus and has a platform and has the willingness and the determination to continue until the task is achieved. Yeah. And what about Biden's role in response to this? What do you think about that? I, I thought Biden and I thought Cuomo were both anti-fracking. No. I know that was said with a big <laughs> wink. Yeah. yeah I mean, was, one of the suggestions I have is stop paying attention to the rhetoric and only pay attention to the record. 
only pay attention to how these politicians are voting, only pay attention to their actions, only pay attention to what they're pushing and what kinds of actions they'll take to push forth that agenda. Anyone, every anyone and almost everyone will say that they're against climate change. Most of them will also say they support the Green New Deal. That really literally means nothing. So I think we need to get over that and stop rewarding them for just saying nice things and really demand some serious actions on their parts. I think Jamie and I talked the other day and we made a list. One of them was don't listen to people over 30. And <laughs> um, we all of us have to shut up except for Alexandria. Yeah. A moment of yeah. silence from now until the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> except for James Hansen, uh, who is uh, known as the father of climate science, science and who warned us about this in decades ago. Um, I would also say in terms of demanding policies, only demand policies that are measurable and verifiable. Anything abstract, there is no time for abstract plans for a plan. And again, a very simple, easy, measurable, verifiable demand would be to stop burning methane and stop animal agriculture. Those two demands are very clear and not abstract, and they can be verified. And I, I also think we need to demand overturning Citizens United needs to be part and parcel of the climate change demand, because again, corruption is why we have a climate crisis. As Jamie suggested, people should go vegan if they can, or start one day a week, just not eating meat, make it two days, then make it three days. That's something that individuals can do. But as Alexandra pointed out, the climate crisis is a result of policy failure by our elected officials. We didn't choose to have gas guzzling cars. The government made that decision that they were going to not allow the development of electric vehicles. We didn't choose to allow this gas-fired power plant, government did that. Even though there are some individual actions that going vegan is definitely one type of individual action that we can take. And I would also, my big recommendation to anyone who is cares about the climate is stop listening to NGOs. Stop listening to the environmental groups. They have misled us for the past decade and they will continue to mislead us they are entrenched with fossil fuel money and certainly don't listen to paid activists. Because again, we and the other, I think the other thing is since we are a society right now organized by capital, the best way to defeat these interests is to cost them money, take actions that cost them money. There are so many urgent planetary crises happening right now, like the article about the Gulf Stream shutting down. And so we need urgent action. And in some cases, electoral politics is not really moving fast enough. And so we really do got to get some sort of action right now. And I think that we need even more. And I'm not sure if our current political framework can even handle responding no. in time to what we need. No, it yeah. can't. That's why we have to change that framework. That's what the paradigm shift is. Mm -hmm. A different way of looking at the necessity of the state we're beginning to see that all we're beginning to see that what Dennis Kucinich said, the government is an engine for the uh, shifting of the wealth from the people upwards. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to protect the status quo, to enforce laws, to, to divide us and make us responsible, blame. Yeah, so they can not be responsible. They can blame us instead. That's right, exactly. And what about like harassing people, embarrassing people? I have real faith 
in the power of embarrassing people's kids, embarrassing parents. Like, I don't mean bullying at all, but somehow if I feel like young people can help shame their young people are very powerful people. Like, can't we just embarrass, make it so that they're just humiliated about their parents and by their parents if they're evil capitalists who are killing people? I totally agree with that, actually. There's actually an article that came out a while ago that said that teenage girls are leading the fight and changing their parents' opinions about climate change, which is totally true because there were some protests that I was at and a lot of, there would be some girls who came and said that their parents wouldn't allow them to come, but then they'd have serious conversations with their parents and some of them would cry to their parents saying, this is my future, it's being ruined by you, you adults, stuff like that, who are not taking action. And she ended up being allowed to come to the strike, which is great. So it really worked. But I think that there are also places like on social media now that youth have so much access to that also makes it easier to kind of change opinions of adults, like on TikTok as well, especially like there are so many videos that young people do relating with each other, but also trying to change their parents' opinions about certain issues. Young people are good at what they're supposed to be doing, like being stubborn. And if they're stubborn to their parents about climate change, then you know that it's working. Yeah. Just, I don't get it. People are selfish. They need to be confronted with what will happen to the planet, their own grandkids, their own kids, or if not even that deep, just humiliated. Like it's cool. Like, Like you were saying rhetoric is not enough, but there is, we can use this coolness factor even though it can be deceptive, but it is cool now, right? Like the Green New Deal is considered cool and progressive and climate change is is considered something that we need to take seriously. So I'm also just for really just shaming people. I haven't thought this out too much. We can brainstorm. Leslie, do you have any ideas about this? I feel like you, because of your massive um, wealth of knowledge about wrestling, maybe you have some ideas about this or just how people act. I feel like you really understand the powerful in a way that most don't. Because you were used to villains. I think we should name more of the villains. I don't know the names of very many CEOs of any of these companies or the people building these power plants. And these are the people destroying the world. Like we know the name of the person who gets into a confrontation at the coffee shop and embarrasses embarrasses themselves or does something says something bad or bigoted or whatever but we don't know the names of the people who are destroying the planet yeah jamie diamond is one who's destroying the, you know him jamie diamond oh, that is one yeah. that we know and all the other bankers at goldman sachs and and citibank and all those other banks that bankroll a totally bankrupt energy producer which is the frack gas industry which is mortgage to its teeth with all the loans that they have to pay back. So the whole system is built as this house of cards. All you have to do is pull the one card out and the whole bloody thing collapses. Yeah. All right. So we're going to have to get a list of names. I'm just, no one on the show is vouching for this. I'm not even vouching for it. I'm just exploring it. We need to shame the polluters, shame the polluters, shame the politician climate deniers. But then I think what youth need to lead the fight on is at least re-educating their parents. Yes. I think a lot of parents don't necessarily know or they've been given misinformation for so many years. And so re-educating is important. And that's what- Re-education camps. I like that too. (laughs) Re-education camps for the powerful. But there's a difference between the people who really don't know and then the people who- really know and either don't care or or are paid to not care and paid to not believe it. I think you're totally right that there are a lot of people who just don't have the, and that's another question, how do we raise awareness? But 
I'm talking about the very powerful people, like the bankers, the politicians who know this stuff. I saw a program where uh, two women farmers from Mali came to the Midwest because they recognized that whatever was happening in, in Mali ultimately came from the United States. And so they came to the middle of the United States and they explained what was happening to them in Mali, the, the, the lack of rain, the, the soil, farming methods, and to almost to a person, the people that they talked to said, listen, I'm sorry, it's just not my issue. Whatever, global warming, whatever that is, I have my own thing. I got to put a crop in, I got to get it done. I'm too busy to do this. They don't yet see that they are. That's a dead end. If they can't take responsibility for what they do and learn how to do it better, then they'll be in the same boat that the the woman from Mali is in within five years. And can you talk specifically about uh, either one of you about any one of you, Biden and and Cuomo and what their roles have been? Cuomo has been a climate deceiver, right? That's as I said, deception on the left, denial on the right. He banned fracking at the same time that he was permitting a power plant that would depend on 150 to 200 fracking wells per year. And then you combine it with another plant that he approved, Cricket Valley, which has increased the state's greenhouse gas emissions by 15% of the power sector. So combine the two, that's 25%. These Both these plants just became operational in the last two years, all the time that he was being praised and uh, glorified by the environmental groups who thank you Cuomo and all of the banners and rallies supporting him and declaring him a climate hero. The the bill that he passed, the CLCPA, again, promised, I forgot, a 50% reduction by 2030 and then 80% by 2040, but they forgot to mention a loopholes here. A, that the state was increasing emissions by 25%. At the same time, they, they were saying they're going to reduce it by 40%. And also they were counting from 1990 levels. They weren't counting from where we are today. And we'd already reduced emissions from 1990 levels by 12%. So that was another misleading accounting acrobatics that they do with climate policy. A lot of people are talking now about how powerful of a guy he was, how much of a bully he was, but we're all forgetting what made him powerful. How did he become powerful? He became powerful because of all the money he had and all the money he had essentially came from 15 billionaires that represent the hedge fund industry, the real estate industry and the fossil fuel industry, fossil fuel being number one. So do you think they're going to donate all this money to this guy and he's actually going to hamstring the fossil fuel industry? Of course not. At the time that he banned fracking, There was a lot of geological studies that New York State actually didn't have the kind of shale reserves that Pennsylvania had, and that New York really became the market for fact gas. And the NGOs did a great job disconnecting the two, the fracking process from the market and from the consumption of frack gas. During his tenure, New York State went from, I think, being the third large, the fourth largest consumer, fifth, I'm sorry, fifth largest consumer of fracked gas in the country to fourth, and we are on target now to be the largest consumer of frack gas in the country. And we are one of the largest economies in, you know, in the country as well. So it has, it has global implications. What Cuomo has done has global implications. And he used a lot of anti-Trump rhetoric. Trump and he were both getting money 
from the same company, from CPV and from their lobbyists. So this is why, this is how bipartisan corruption works, right? They buy both sides and they do it pretty effectively. And Biden is no different. As I said, this company is building these power plants all over the country to serve every major metropolitan area. And so they have to get federal permits. They have to get state permits. They get federal permits. Almost all of the states in which they build their power plants are Democratic-led states. California, Maryland, now they're in Illinois, Massachusetts, California. And I think Biden, I don't expect a lot from Biden because he's tied by the same fossil fuel interest. The infrastructure bill is also not at all what it started out as. So I'm not optimistic there. In, in, in the New York's climate bill, if we were actually going to meet those goals, those benchmarks, and by the way, any bill or any proposal that talks about 2030, 2040, 2050, when we know we have a climate crisis now, should be a non-starter for everybody. But even that bill, the climate bill that New York State passed, which was billed as the boldest climate bill in the entire country, if we were actually meeting those goals, we should be building a windmill a day from the day that bill was passed. So we haven't done that. We haven't built any. So we're two years behind already. I guess, what, 700, some almost 700 windmills behind. It, we're not going to do it. It's just a game they play, again, just rhetoric. And so I think it's upon the youth climate movement to get more strict in what they're demanding of these politicians, Biden and Cuomo. I don't have great expectations for Biden either. Yeah, I, I agree with um, everything you said. And I actually want to say that Cuomo has been more deceptive about fracking because he's tried to label himself out to be an environmentalist, but then defends and approves pipelines and fracking. But I think that actually goes for quite a bit of politicians. So here in California, Newsom has approved 2,691 permits in 2020. So that's double how many permits he approved in 2019. So he doubled those permits in what was the worst fire season and the first ever gigafire that California ever really had. So I think that it should be unacceptable for politicians to label themselves as environmentalists if they're constantly still doing things that damage the environment. And I agree, the youth climate movement, we are definitely planning some things to make sure that we hold them accountable, hold polluters accountable, and then also just keep getting harsher with our demands. What are those demands and what are the demands that you're making? It really changes for every protest and every group doing it. So I think that one thing that we're really focusing on is divest for a lot of our demands, divestment, and then also holding polluters accountable and then protecting the people. And so actually my organization, Earth Uprising, we held a summit on throughout Earth Week. And so on, it was the 21st, I believe that we held it. And we had, it was basically a youth organized and all youth led panel of activists. And we talked about issues that were directly affecting youth. And we of course talked about like environmental justice, but we went even farther. There's a lot of youth activists who are protesting in countries and they're risking their lives and they're getting arrested for it. So making sure that youth are protected for their freedom of speech. The climate crisis is so intersectional that there's so many issues and demands that we have. And so I think that it, we change it every time to the current situation to make sure that we get the most action possible. And any boycotts, anything like that? 
Yeah, my generation actually, we are already boycotting the most goods and services. We are boycotting a lot already, mostly because of income inequality. My generation is the poorest generation. And so I think that that kind of goes into what we boycott and how we do it. I, I think a lot of people know that fracking is bad, but can one of you explain uh, in a kind of accessible way what it does that's so dangerous? Yeah, fracking is a new technology that was developed in the late 90s, early 2000s, essentially by Halliburton of Dick Cheney fame, Halliburton. And it basically um, takes high pressure water and sand and shoots it. First, it takes a drill that goes down into the bedrock about a mile deep. And then they have a new technology where they can turn that drill horizontally, laterally, and then they go another mile. And then once they do that, then they shoot under high pressure, a ton of different chemicals and water, a lot of water and sand to fracture the, to literally fracture the bedrock. And that releases pockets of methane that have been um, embedded in that bedrock for millions of years. And, and all of that, and then they suck all of that out and then they separate the, the wastewater from the methane and then they process the methane and then deliver it to New York City. And New York City's use of gas, you can thank Bloomberg for that. But anyway, the chemicals, they use a, a cocktail of chemicals. Because of the Halliburton loophole, they're not, they don't have to disclose what those chemicals are. And, and then they distribute that wastewater as brine on the roads for snow for when it snows. So it really permeates the entire environment. And so the, all of those chemicals and those poisons, it poisons the air, the soil, the water for miles. And then on top of that, I think there was a, a report that just came out from Physicians for Social Responsibility just a few weeks ago. And they found out that Obama's, it was Obama's EPA that allowed the fracking industry to use something known as PFAS chemicals. They're known as forever chemicals because they never, they never disintegrate in the environment. They stay in the environment and poison you forever. They don't dissipate. They're highly toxic. They're highly dangerous. And against the advice of EPA's own internal scientists that warn of the public health hazards of these chemicals, the EPA allow the fracking industry to use them anyway. And I, I just read another article recently um, that said that as the Arctic ice sheets melt, it's actually releasing PFASs into the atmosphere. Again, I always say that the, the public health crisis is the other side of the coin of the climate crisis. They both go hand in hand. What is assaulting the bodies of our children and poisoning our children today is also being released into the atmosphere creating all of this climate chaos as well. That's what fracking does. Not only that, but all of that material is so deep in the ground that it, it is bringing up radioactive material to the surface. And as one scientist explained it to me, it took millions of years for life to be, to enable life on earth to develop after all of the radioactive material was buried deep in the soil. And now we're taking all of that and bringing it to the surface.
It's a very dangerous process. The public health impacts in Pennsylvania, where they're extracting, where they're fracking, Colorado and Wyoming have been enormous. There's rare childhood cancers that are um, spreading throughout the fracking fields of Pennsylvania. It's a rare childhood sarcoma that scientists believe are, are linked to fracking. And it's going to have serious public health consequences long-term as well. Immediately, asthma, of course, respiratory illnesses, cardiac uh, disease, all of the illnesses that scientists uh, associate with pollution. You have all of those radioactive particles uh, and forever chemicals, and you can't remove them from the environment. It's, it's extremely irresponsible. It's criminal assault, what is happening to these communities, including communities in upstate New York, like Minisink. And it's the politicians, as well as the corporations and the company executives that are responsible for this, for this should be held criminally responsible for causing bodily harm. Yeah. Thank you, that, thank you Pramila. That was a great explanation of it, really. One thing about fracking that always is so upsetting for me is the, how it poisons the water because one of those poisons is uh, benzene, which causes neurological damage and cancer and it gets into our water supply. And this also affects youth the most because our bodies and brains are still developing. And so toxins are amplified in children and causes even more damage. And there's also some new reports saying out, coming out about how neurological damage affects children's ability to focus and learn. And so people are connecting the rise in attention deficit disorder and other neurological issues seen in children to increasing pollution from fossil fuels and processes like fracking. So when people are like, stay in school children, it's if you want us to learn better, stop fracking. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. There's also like a whole range of mental health consequences to just children becoming aware of the imminent crisis of climate change. There's a lot of literature on that as well. It's, it's interesting because I'm reminded of what just happened uh, this weekend where Biden was saying, because I think everyone's pointing out on this panel, right? Politicians will not save us, but I think that they can be maybe forced to get out of the way a little bit. And, to let social movements do things because Biden, of course, was saying this weekend he his hands were tied. He couldn't do anything about the eviction moratorium expiring. And then what happens? You have Cori Bush sleeping outside of the, the Capitol on the steps. She herself has been was formerly unhoused. And then lo and behold, there's an extension. Okay, albeit extremely insufficient, a little bit too targeted, not ideal at all. But this idea that we have to always remember that power is going to say it can't do things that it can. And people have to be really outraged and people have to constantly be pushing back on that notion. Because I actually think that people like good people in good faith don't understand that. And they think like when people lay down the rules that those are just the rules. So we have to constantly, I think, remind people of that also. Yeah, I mean, I continue to pressure the politicians. Absolutely, of course, because they're the ones that are writing policy right now. Actually, the NGOs are, but that's a different discussion. Oh, yeah, but definitely pressure the politicians, but also target the companies. Understanding how that corruption works, I think you need to target both. Yeah. yeah someone just actually said lawsuits, and I think that's really that's a really important part of it. And actually, there's e there's so many more lawsuits that are happening, and especially the youth are filing against their governments and their countries, and so. I'm actually a part of a lawsuit that's through the United Nations. So it's the Children vs. Climate Crisis complaint. And so myself, Greta Thunberg, and 14 other children filed a complaint to the Committee on the Rights of the Child. 
stating that Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Turkey, and France were violating our rights by their inaction on the climate crisis. And so our complaint has been filed as admissible, saying that they do recognize that our rights are being violated. And the committee has held a hearing for us. And right now we're waiting for the for the, all of the countries to respond. And so a lot of people are like, why those countries? And it's because they actually, they signed the treaty for it. And they, they said that if they don't uphold their commitments, then we can hold them accountable. And the United States actually isn't part of that, sadly, because they did not ratify the rights of the child at all, which is the most widely ratified treaty <laughs> in the world. But they also, it's really upsetting that the U.S. did not do that. But it's really interesting how children are finding all these new loopholes and ways to hold our countries accountable. And there's even more lawsuits that are happening. And so I think that it's important that we keep finding all of those different levels that we can hold people accountable. So lawsuits, protesting, just everything. And speaking of lawsuits in the legal system and the criminal justice system, or as Gabor Mate likes to call it, the criminal justice system, can you, can Jamie and Pramila talk about the necessity defense and how you use that and how maybe that can be applied to other things? It should be applied, but we didn't get to use it because uh, unfortunately it's up to the judge. It was then to allow that defense. It worked in Massachusetts. Tim Christensen, I think that the group that he was with that tried to, they stopped a pipeline in Massachusetts and they used the defense and we tried to do it and it was thrown out. It was interesting because it was thrown out at a municipal judge's level with basically on the, because of his ignorance and his, I got to call it stupidity in the way he he represented the threat that this plant had for the community. He said, because it wasn't built, it didn't represent a threat. Therefore, there was no necessity defense that the harm done by what we were protesting against was worse than the infraction of the law that we broke. But and, and the, can you explain, sorry, just so people know uh, what the necessity defense, what that is? That that the what you are protesting against, which what you are, what you the action that you've taken is to is against a larger threat to the well-being, your own personal well-being and the well-being of the community than the violation of the law, which is in our particular case was blocking traffic, which has no comparison at all with what that plant is capable, the injury that plant is capable of. And that should be, it should be fairly obvious that there comes a point, regardless of the law, that there are consequences that are not in, have not been included in the statute that if you don't if you don't resist against that then nothing changes at all so it's like the difference between legal and just or illegal and uh, unjust it is when the law is unjust Right. That the necessity defense restores the justice that is necessary. But the one thing we did get out of that was the trial in which we had a number of prominent scientists testify okay. about both the public health and climate impacts of the project. And the reason we had to do that, there was twofold. A, the media wasn't covering the power plant project at all. And so we did this to get media attention, but also the regulatory agencies, DEC, under the control of King Cuomo, wouldn't accept any of our, our studies or our data or our testimony about the impacts of the plant. So this was a way of getting all of that scientific testimony on an official record. 
And we, so we appealed it, and the appeal was extraordinary. That I don't think the judge even bothered to read it. He just, oh, you're in for trying to get the necessity fence denied. And it was like two seconds he just turned. Because, of course, they don't want to stop and take a look at the root causes and, and the injustice. So they just use the system and, and shine you off. Yeah, we would be naive to think that any of the institutions and organizations that are a product of a system that is very dependent on the money from from extracting recklessly from the earth, we would be naive to think that any of these institutions are actually going to stop that process. Right. Uh, but the point is to expose them, whether it's the media or the courts or the regulatory agencies or the politicians. The whole point is to expose them so that people can start becoming aware of this systemic corruption and then say, hey, I want to do something about this. I don't want to accept this any longer. And do you guys have faith in, in the necessity defense being used by in other cases or is it just to? Oh, no, it should be used as much as possible yeah. until it becomes precedent. Until people yeah. understand that there's a higher law. Right. Yeah, that was something Martin Luther King talked about a lot. Because obviously yeah. those things were illegal. And if the courts fail, you call it the court. If the judge fails, you call it the judge. Just keep going. We have no choice. We really don't have much of a choice. And wanted to, someone asked how Alexandria, some unicorn, how does Alexandria feel about Extinction Rebellion? I shouldn't have even acknowledged that. Anyway, we're all yeah. in this here. Okay. I think that... Extinction Rebellion, when I first got involved in activism was around the time when I think that they first started to be active or they started to really start protesting in the UK. I really think that XR taught me a lot about civil disobedience and I think that civil disobedience is really important. And I really, I always say that the climate movement is like this like vast ecosystem because every single, there's so many different organizations out there and they all focus on different issues and like different ways of taking action. So. Extinction Rebellion focuses on more of the direct action and the civil disobedience. My organization focuses on climate education. And then there's like other organizations like Zero Hour that focus on like systems of oppression. And there's even, there's way more organizations out there than, than that. And all of them are so important because the climate movement needs action in every single different way. Of course, I think each movement does have its struggles and they're challenged by making our movement even more active, more intersectional. And so it is a privilege to be arrested. And I think that I really appreciate how Extinction Rebellion was using the privilege that they had to be arrested because it was bringing attention to the issue. Yeah. Someone, by the way, in the in on Twitter said, "Hi, Katie. Can I correct a point on the chat tonight? Fracking began in Scotland in 1851, invented by James Paraffin Young. Not high volume hydraulic fracturing, which is what we have today. There you go. I knew it. I knew we would, this, the truth would be spoken. Not high. What is it? Not high. High volume hydraulic fracturing. Exactly what I was going to say. I mean, the technology to move those drills laterally is just happened a decade and a half ago. So no. And uh, any final words? This has been so great. I yeah, I have so many more questions, obviously, but I wanna can't keep you guys here all night. Don't despair. Struggle, resist. Question authority, and find your own path. We can set. We can save this planet. The planet will be here. We can save life on this planet if we all work together. Yeah, I think my final thing is that now is the time to be an activist, even more so than I feel like it's so important right now to be doing something 
about all the issues that we have and support the youth climate movement in any way that you can, of course. And I can't wait to, to see what we do this year. And especially when we get to a post pandemic world. And I would say, find the truth shall, shall set you free. And despite planting that as the last question, one more thing I want to ask you about uh, Alexandria, what is all we can save? Oh, yes. All We Can Save is is one of my favorite books. <laughs> it's basically this anthology that includes voices of over um, 60 women who are leading in climate. And so it's edited by Katherine Wilkinson and Ayana Johnson. And I was myself and another activist, Shia Vestida, are the two youth voices in it. And so it's the first time that I've, you know, ever heard. <laughs> Um, been in a book and ever written anything for it. And so I have an essay in it called A Letter to Adults. And it's basically just this call to adults to support youth and amplify us and join our movement, especially. And it's a really incredible book. I recommend you all get it because it's now available in paperback. And so the reason why I love All We Can Save is because it contains history, it contains solutions, it's really this this book that basically has every different area of like climate change that you want to you you need to read about. And so I really like it because it also gives motivation and hope. And so if you ever feel hopeless, it's definitely the book to read because it gives you a new perspective on the climate crisis. Great. Anyone else have any other questions, comments, recommendations? All right. So we figured it all out. Maybe not all of it, but we figured part of it out. This is the first. I do have one question because my fans will kill me if I don't ask Mr. Cockrum himself what he thinks about the, the our real class of billionaire astronauts, the Jeff Bezos's launch and what you think uh, of that because they're modeling themselves after the character you played in star trek in a lot of ways some sometimes explicitly so what do you think of how do our uh zephyrins cop compare the jeff bezos the the elon musk of the world can you just explain that to the people who don't know that reference oh yes i should so zephyrin cockrum in the star trek universe was the first man who was able to travel faster than light which got the attention of the other alien races and helped elevate humanity, take them to the stars. Basically it was this pivotal moment in humanity where we turned away from capitalism and exploring our planet to exploring the universe and bringing light and working for the embedment of all humanity. I don't think that the Jeff Bezos launch is quite inspiring the same notion in fact he said he just wanted us to go and mine on the moon yeah i really like that from cochran and the bezos's and the, the other people are wankers in my personal opinion and it has nothing to do with the aspirations of humanity to bring the, the miracle of what it is to be conscious in the universe instead it's a way to aggrandize themselves it's for their ego and also because I think in the back of their minds, they think we screwed up this place. We can go to some other place. We'll live some other place and we'll leave it to them to go through the hell that we've created. And you can tell because when Bezos says, I want to thank all the people who work at Amazon and the people who buy at Amazon because they paid for it. That's right. They paid for it. They work their asses off. And all that money goes to a man who has nothing better to do with his life 
and take his ass out into space and flit around in his little space capsule and come back that shitting, excuse me, grin on his face. <laughs> and I think it's deplorable. I think they're nuts. Yeah. You know, Thank you so much for answering that question. Thank you. Yes. And of course, I just want to share that people may not know this, but it's very moving. You became, Jamie became a vegan after babe, correct? Yeah. I, I don't eat, I'm not there yet, but I'm a vegetarian since the age of 11 because I love pigs. They're, I think they're so cute and smart and adorable. So I don't, that's why I don't eat uh, meat. Actually, all animals are adorable. I don't think, I'm going to be honest. I don't think chickens are adorable. That doesn't mean oh. that it's right for me to eat them. I'm just saying no. like on a visceral level, I just want to hug a pig in a way I don't want to hug a chicken. Yeah. Maybe well, I've never met the right. Chicken is good. Chicken yeah. Is smart yeah. and courageous and uh, not at all how they're projected to be. Yeah. They're, they're very always... rational. I, I yeah. realize that because <laughs> when they're running around with their heads cut off, that's an. What that's about a... Do you want to adopt my rooster? <laughs> you have a rooster? <laughs> He's a he's a real. <laughs> I think that's my son, actually, in the Chinese zodiac. There you go. Yeah. I think I think chicken is mine, actually. Oh, there you go. Anyone else know theirs? Yeah, dragon. Dragon. Okay. What's what are your guys' birthdays? It's minus sixty four. I don't know. I think I'm uh, dog. Dog, my favorite. I should bring Bodhi onto the show. What's it's your it, oh is it based on the year or is it based on the oh it's based, it's based on the, on the year. year based on the, right. the China a Chinese year, not oh, our year. Uh, yeah, I just want to say one thing, Kitty. Yeah, of course. Is, I was really appalled at the reaction of many people, supposedly who are climate activists and who are progressives, to Michael Moore's film Planet of the Humans. I, I and especially from people who understand how difficult it is to raise the money and put together a documentary in a certain amount of time so that your the, the thing you shot first is not out of date by the time you get to the edit, but also not addressing the questions raised by that documentary, which is what Michael put his name on it for, so that it would there would be a discussion about, are we going in the right direction with windmills and solar panels, which are just as destructive to the environment and maybe even more. And I thought that it was egotistical, short-sighted, cowardly, and banal of the criticism that came out of the mouths of people who should know better. They should go back and they owe Michael an apology. And then let's have a discussion about the very issues he raised. And that there's a program. Yes, let's do it. I and we uh, had I had Michael Moore on my show, and then we had him on Useful Idiots. And yeah, because honestly, a way if you want to get interest, all you have to do is try to censor something or shut it down. And I had him on the show anyway. But it, yeah, it, yeah, Katie actually covered that controversy extensively. You're uh, not giving yourself enough credit. You were on the ball about exactly this when it happened. Yeah, we got some. I got some interesting pushback. I got some the, interesting. I must say, the NGOs, in my experience, oh, yes. that. The, the, it was deplorable, the yes. lack of support and how far they went in the other direction. They actually contributed to the creating of an organization of small grassroots NGOs to, to create a larger footprint for the positions that we hold and the causes that we wanted to raise. And they did it entirely to subvert the process 
so that they could get a bill passed through the New York legislature, which is, as Pramila will tell you, is incredibly flawed. That was New York Renews, and then it was renamed, and that was really low. And uh, that people will stoop to do that, pervert something as important as this is cowardly in the extreme. Yeah, I think that's another discussion. We should have a whole other show on that, the NGO uh, industrial complex, because a lot of people don't know that about how you, I don't know if you know about this, Alexandria, because uh, this sounds so condescending. I can't believe I said that, but I don't know if you've come up against them yet, but they, we have to have our, be vigilant because a lot of people who I grew up thinking were great people, great organizations. You nailed it, Alexandria, when you talked about how certain slogans are like developed by corporations, like your carbon footprint, but it's really disturbing to see this happening at NGOs, not just corporations. So we'll have to do a whole other show on that. I'm yeah. sure there's, I think that there's a lot in there. That's There's a lot to talk about in that area. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This is great. Let's have more. Got to have more of these. We can have a weekly chat. Just kidding. That would be it. That, it, it may require that though, to get to the solution, but yeah. thank you so much. And I'll put any, if there are any things people want to shout out, like organizations or actions, let me know. I'll put it in the description or you can chat it out now. Yeah. And- we, we have a petition because we're still asking for both the permits for the power plant to be rescinded and based on the corruption convictions. And also we're asking for oversight hearings so that New Yorkers could know how this ter- corruption transpired. So that's tinyurl slash built on bribes. And to hear my extended interview with Pramila Malik, where we talk about the Andrew Cuomo scandal nobody is talking about, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Thank you.